Uh, take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Hosea chapter 13. We're nearing the end. And so today I want to preach out of Hosea 13. Pastor Ken will be in 14 next week. And just hang on. Good news is definitely uh, coming for sure. So this morning, uh, I want to read just the first four verses and we'll just kind of jump into it. It says this, uh, When Ephraim spoke trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. But when he offended through Baal worship, he died. Now they sin more and more and have made for themselves molded images, idols of their silver according to their skill. All of it is the work of craftsmen. They say of them, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. Therefore they shall be like the morning cloud and like the early dew that passes away, like chafe blown off from a threshing floor and like smoke from a chimney. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. And God, we just ask you to speak to our hearts this morning through your word. Uh, Father, I pray that God, the Holy Spirit, and the Lord will do a work in each and every uh, individual in the room. Uh, that God, well, we don't look to the left or the right or the front or the back. Uh, but God, that we ask you just to speak to our hearts as individuals. Uh, Lord, I pray that today uh, if there is someone in this house that is... Uh, lost and do uh, not know you as their personal Lord and Savior, that today uh, would be the day of salvation. Uh, God, we would love to rejoice with heaven today, uh, Lord, over a soul. So God, we praise you uh, knowing that you have gone before us. We praise you knowing that, uh, God, your word never returns to you void. And uh, we are thankful uh, today that, uh, God, we just get to proclaim you. And Lord, we love you, praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. James 1.13 uh, through 16 says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desires has conceived... It gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Have you ever sit down, this is really more for couples, you've had maybe a time that has gone, uh, and you're just longing for uh, just a, maybe a date, maybe a moment just to sit at a dinner with your, your spouse, and you've kind of built up to it. Maybe the day has come and you are now sitting together at a restaurant, no distractions, everything's good, having a great time. Um, and all of a sudden, somebody recognizes you and walks up to you, and they basically invade your table for two. Anybody? Maybe y'all don't eat out. Or they come up to your car at the signing. Here, this is, this is Fayette County or the drive through at McDonald's. Or if you're lucky, you may bump them at Subway, whatever. We understand there's a table set. And in that table, there's a time that you are spending together. And somebody just comes. Tiffany and I was at dinner, I don't know, maybe six months ago. 
uh, lunch one day, actually, it wasn't dinner, and we were just sitting there talking. And I had a young man come up to me that I've not seen in 10 years, and he just comes and just scoots me over, sits down, and says, hey, you're going to marry my fiance and I in a couple of weeks. I was like, no, I'm not. He's like, well, will you? I said, no, uh, I haven't had time to counsel you. I won't marry unless I have had time to counsel. And uh, so it was just, but he just wouldn't leave. And it's like one of those things where it's like, man, would you just kind of get out of the way? I'm like, I got 45 minutes to hang out with my wife and you're not included. Uh, and I know I'm, I'm probably mean, but, you know, there's just those times. And I say that to say this because God has set a table for you. Uh, the Bible says that he has set a table for us in Psalms 23 in the presence of our enemies. And what's going on here, and I'm going to just kind of hit this a little bit different today because for the last 13 weeks, you've heard a lot of repetitive history. This is what they were doing. This was a sin. God saying repent. They wouldn't repent. Judgment's coming. But today I want to talk about why we get to that place. Out of this passage, why do we get to that place? And I came up, I was going to actually set a table and have like elaborate food and all this stuff, but I just didn't have time to pull it all together. But just kind of picture with me as we walk through this, I'm going to thread this idea of a table. And God has set that table for us. God has set that table and he has prepared that table for you. And I just want to say this on the side note real quick as we're opening. If you're not sitting down with your family and having dinner at a table, you need to start. There's a lot of amazing things. I mean, some of our greatest times are during the week when we just put our phones to the side and Tiffany and I and the girls just sit and we just talk. And we just sit there and we talk about our day, we talk about life, we talk about the Lord, and just so many amazing things happen around the table. And I encourage you to do that. But at that table, there's another who wants to be present. There's another one who wants to come in and he wants to invade your time, your intimacy uh, with the Lord. And that's exactly what God had done for the nation of Israel. If you go back into the history, God says, man, I didn't choose you because you were the greatest of all people. I chose you because I loved you and I have a plan for you. And so really what God's doing, just stay with me, is he has set a table for Israel. And he wanted to be at the head of that table for them. And he wanted them to, to be in a relationship with him and walk with him and grow with him so that they actually could be the light uh, to the Gentiles. And so he said that and he had prepared that table and he had them on display for the world to see but what happened with Israel is Israel invited the enemy to the table what they did is they started mingling in the Baal worship and then they started actually here we see that they even began to create and craft their own images and they began to explore all of these sexual things that, that had to do with Baal worship and so what they did is they invited the enemy to their table and so for these last few chapters, we have seen how that has played out. But now we come to the place in this chapter here, verse 13, where God's had enough. God said, hey, you know what? No more. I have tried over and over and over again to get you to see that I am the love of your life. I am the one who is exclusive in your life, and you have stepped out on me. And so there is this danger that has now happened. And in Psalm 1, I'm not going to turn there and read it, but if you read Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2, there's kind of this progression. The Bible says, Blessed is the man who does not sit in the counsel of the ungodly. Blessed is the man who does not stand in the street of the sinners 
or blessed is the man who does not sit at the seat of the scornful. And there's this progression there that if you begin to walk with the enemy, eventually you're going to stop and you're going to stand with the enemy, but eventually he's going to be sitting at your table. And when he begins to sit at your table, that's where the devastating results come. And that's just kind of what this whole thing is talking about. The first thing is you see with this is the progression of sin. Notice what verse 1 says. When Ephraim spoke trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. But when he offended through Baal worship, he died. The idea of exalting himself is a prideful nature. Who should be at the head of this table? God. We all know that. We know that it should be God. And I just want to say this. It's really easy to read this kind of scripture. And I don't know about you, but to look at it and go, what in the world were they thinking? They had to be the dumbest people to sit there and know that God has done all this and they just walk away from God. And it is easy even in our time to look around even this room or outside these walls and see people who have sinned or have done something really bad and to say, gosh, what were they thinking? Well, I can tell you what happened. They got the table wrong. They got the seating wrong at their table. I don't believe people just walk up, wake up one morning and go, man, I want to be addicted to drugs. I don't believe people just wake up one morning and say, hey, I'm going to step out on my wife. I don't believe people wake up one morning and go, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go kill somebody today. I think it's a progression of sin that ultimately leads to the wrong person is sitting at the table. And that's what's going on here. And so they had this really prideful nature because it says that they exalted themselves. Ephraim was known for its pride. If you study about it, they were known for asserting their leadership and their strength. Wherever they went, they wanted to make sure that they were in control. They wanted to make sure that they were number one. And basically, in our day's term, they just got too big for their britches. And what they wanted to do is they didn't want God to be the head of their table. They wanted to be the head of their table. They're the ones that wanted to be in control. And I just want to say this this morning. The enemy doesn't have to be the head of your table. He just wants a place at it. He doesn't have to be in control of your life. He just wants a piece of the puzzle. Because whenever he does that is when he begins to bring forth destruction in our lives. He just needs to tap in to our pride. He just needs to bend our ear a little bit. Or as James says, entice us just a little bit to give us some kind of false hope for some kind of momentary satisfaction. All he needs to do is just sit down for a minute. And Israel was guilty of that. Basically, they were going, God, we don't need you. We got this. We know that you said Assyria is coming. We know that you have warned us. But listen, we got this. We have even are so good. We've crafted our own images, and we can worship them, and they'll take care of us. We do not need you. That's what they were saying. And Israel is guilty of it. And pride always leads to demise. And pride is where sin enters the story. Where did pride come from? Well, we know it came from Lucifer, who was known as the morning star, the worship leader of heaven, 
The one who had the bold claim, I will ascend to the Most High. I will. I will. Anytime I is involved and it's your will, you're full of pride. That's exactly what was going on. In Ezekiel 28, 15, God even said, uh, on his view of Lucifer's desires, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. And the problem with pride is pride never looks so too far ahead. See, what, what Lucifer wanted was to ascend the throne. But what he didn't realize is when he attempted to ascend the throne of heaven, he didn't look far enough ahead to know that God was going to kick him out of heaven and it was going to set forth an absolute battle of the ages. He didn't see that he was going to lose because pride usually doesn't see loss. So what happens is, is people trade a momentary satisfaction gained from a prideful decision and it is always outweighed by everlasting contempt. And that's what's going on right here. Joel Beek says pride is a devastating sin and complex. Most sins turns us away from God, but pride directly attacks God. It lifts us up against God, seeking to dethrone him by enthroning ourselves. He exalted himself. But after pride, there's an increased desire. Look what number two, verse two says, Now they sin more and more. It wasn't enough that they sinned. They just had to sin more and more. You know, it's always amazing how the Bible can tack that last little phrase on. Like, they sin more, no and more. Right? There's a children's movie out. I don't know if y'all have ever seen it called Open Season 2. Y'all know, know the movie? You know, the one-horned deer. He's all funny and weird and all that. And he's getting married to his love, Giselle. And they're doing the wedding ceremony. And the guy says that you're going to love her forever and ever. And he freaks out and he runs off. He says, I was good with forever. But and forever? That's just way too much. I wasn't expecting that kind of commitment. Well, here it says that they sin not just more, but more and more. That's a problem. That means there was no restraint. When I looked that little phrase up this week in, in the Hebrew, it simply meant no restraint. And can you hear the enemy here as they have exalted themselves? Now they're sinning more and more. And he's just sitting there going, Mink, you don't have to worship one God. Who does he think he is? Who, who, I mean, who, who really has the goods on worship? I mean, I was his worship pastor. And if anybody knows about worship, I do. And God, I don't know who he thinks he is saying that you have to worship him and him alone. Can you just hear the enemy? He says the same thing to us. You don't have to be exclusive in an re exclusive relationship with God. You don't have to worship him alone. You just do what you want to do as long as it feels good to you. Go ahead and do it. And then that restraint begins to be released to the point where he even says just go ahead and create your own gods. And I just wonder in this room alone how many of us have created our own gods at times in our life. And so James warns us though. He says when men are drawn away of their own lust and enticed. So we have the ability to be drawn away from our own lust, but then the enemy comes in and he entices us in that moment. 
It's kind of like this, and I'll just say, I'll give you a couple examples. One is gossip. Our flesh, let's all be honest, is drawn to hear something about somebody. But then the enemy entices us to go, hey, you need to get involved. You need to speak back or you need to give ear to that. Sometimes I believe in these sins in our lives that we end up in. I sometimes just wonder if like the Lord is in the background jumping up, screaming, waving his hands, going, stop it. Because he knows how weak our flesh is. And when we're enticed, it's like pouring gasoline on a fire. And so he wants to do that. That's what he desires to do. But, and then we think our ways are better, right? I mean, that's what they're doing. God, your, your design was great. Uh, we appreciate you saying that we have to worship you and you alone. Uh, but trace their history. Man, this golden calf is better. Uh, the Baal is better. Uh, all of these things that come along, these graven images, have just been better. And so, Lord, you know, we know what's best for us. And somehow we are convinced through our flesh and by the enemy that sin is better for us than what God's restraint is for us. And so that's what happens in our life. And the sin of pride, I've been reading in a book, if you are a reader in here, The God's Devil by Erwin Lutzer. It's one of the greatest books I've ever read about the enemy and, and how he fell and his approach. But he says this, the sin of pride always triggers the law of unintended consequences. So as we sin more and more, we don't realize that there is a, a series of consequences that have already been laid out and they are there and there's nothing you can do to restrain those consequences once you give in to that sin. So that's what they're doing is they sin more and more. And as long as the enemy has a place at our table convincing us that we don't have to repent, that repentance is weak and embarrassing, we end up in this cycle of destruction. I exalt myself and then I sin more and more. And the more I exalt myself, the more I sin, the more difficult it is, is to have an unrepentant heart. And that's what they were doing. They just refused to repent as we've watched through this whole thing. The biggest problem of Israel was refusal to repent. God was willing. God was going, I'm ready. I'm ready to forgive you. But they just refused to repent. And it's the same thing the enemy wants from us. He wants us to prove that he can meet our deepest need and that we don't need God. Right? I mean, when you think about it, the prodigal son goes to his dad and he says, Hey, Dad, I want what's mine. I know what's better for me than you do. Give it to me. And the Bible says he went out and he spent all of his, th all of his money on riotous living and he found himself in a hog pen. He had to get to the place of a Jew eating corn husk with pigs. If you know anything about Jewish history, that was a bad place to be. He would have been better off strung up in a prison somewhere. He's in a mud hole eating corn husk with a pig before he came to himself. Why? Because he exalted himself. Dad, I know better than you do. And he went out and he sinned more and more. So it led finally to a heart eventually after brokenness. And you'll see the same thing next week. But we get so caught up that we do not want to admit we're wrong. And we have this unrepentant heart. So he tells us that we don't have to submit to the Almighty. 
You don't have to listen to God. You do exactly what you want to do. You can be self-absorbed, self-motivated, and self-driven. It doesn't matter. So he takes this thing and he makes it look really good. And his strategy ultimately is to turn us away from God. That's what he was doing with them. He was trying to turn them away from God. He makes sin look, look good, right? The Bible even says it says it looks good. And even for a season, it's fun. So he tells us that this sin looks good, and if it looks good, and it feels good, right? Do it. I mean, that's what we do. God, you're not in control. It feels good to me. How many marriages and how many families have been broken up through the history of humanity because something looked good and felt good? But in the moment that they acted on it, it immediately set off these unintended consequences and families and lives destroyed for generations. That's how the enemy works. And when he comes at you, he comes at you for keeps. And he comes at you with one thing in mind, to destroy. But God has set these parameters and God has said, don't go there. Sin literally means missing the mark. Why? Because God has set these parameters. Uh, the Bible uses the term trespasses a lot of times. That means don't cross the line. And he has set these parameters for what is good in our lives because he cares for us. And the enemy puts into questions God's authority. He did it in Genesis. Did God say? He did it with them. Build your own images. And he does it to us today in all kind of ways. It's okay to do this. It's okay to step out. It's okay. Nobody's watching. You don't, you don't, you don't, nobody sees this. So what it does is it leads to this unrepentant heart and it leads to so many problems. But then the second thing is, is the problem of sin. And we got the progression. We know it happens. But then you have the problem and four, he's there in this, this phrase. It's like he's trying to remind them who he is. Yet I am the Lord your God and ever since the land of Egypt. And you shall know no God but me. For there is no Savior besides me. I knew you in the wilderness, in the land of great drought. When they had pastured, they were filled. They were filled, and their heart was exalted. There's God going, do you remember how amazing I've been to you? And then it says, therefore, they forgot me. So the problem with sin is sin brings separation. Verse 4, it says it. God's reminding them and he's telling them, please look at me, listen to me, I'm here. I'm begging you, please let me back at your table. Let me have a seat. Let's kick the enemy out of the way and let me sit back down. But it says that they forgot him. What's the enemy want to do? The enemy knows that if you're saved, he cannot have your soul. So what he wants to do is he wants to separate us, break our relationship with the Lord. Not that you're still not going to go to heaven, but you're going to be mighty miserable on the way. And it doesn't give us a, 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 a permission to sin. 
But he sits there and he says, man, I just want to break that relationship that they have with God. And I don't know about you. I, I can't answer for you, but there have been times in my life where sin has separated me from God. And I can tell you that when David says it made his bones ache, it will literally make your bones ache. Whenever you know that God is near but he's far, that you can't get to him because sin has separated you and he's the love of your life, it hurts. And if it doesn't hurt you, you may not be saved. Just being honest. Because sin wants to separate. And it does separate. Isaiah 59 says it. Your, your, your Lord is not so heavy, or, or hand is not so short that he cannot reach, nor his ear too heavy that he cannot hear, but your sin has separated you from him. So the purpose of sin and the desire of the enemy is that that relationship be broken. And I don't care how you look at it, anytime separation is in the picture, it is ugly. So that's one thing sin does. The second thing is it causes destruction. Verses 7 and 9. So I will be with them like a lion, like a leopard by the road I will lurk. I will meet them like a bear deprived of her cubs. I will tear open their rib cage. God's pretty serious about sin, y'all. And there I will devour them like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. Oh, Israel, you are destroyed, but your help is in me. So sin brings destruction. And we know that any time we are struggling against God, that we are putting ourselves in danger for the enemy to come and attack. Whenever, whenever we are at odds with God, we are wide open prey for the enemy to come. And he lurks and he's waiting and he wants to attack us. And no matter how many help books you read, no matter how, how many conferences you go to, how many Bible studies you do, if sin is in your life, you are separated from God and the enemy is coming and he is coming with full force. And so we have to, to be vigilant with that. And he wants to rage war against us. He doesn't care about us, and he doesn't care about the collateral damage. Please hear me. Your sin does not only affect you. My sin does not only affect me. There is collateral damage, and oftentimes that collateral damage is children. And it just devastates and yet, sometimes we're so busy exalting ourselves that we don't see the very people the closest to us are being destroyed by sin. And so we know that it brings destruction. And the enemy has been on mission for millennial to destroy humankind. All he wants to do is destroy you so he can point his finger at God. William Farley says, sin destroys everything it touches. It destroys the glory of God. It distorts individual happiness. It corrupts family. It divides churches. It's like rat poison. It smells and looks good, but it ultimately kills its victim. Although sin often brings short-term pleasure, if not atoned for, it terminates an infinite plan. Sin destroys. Think about this. Some of you, some Cajuns in here, right? Some people have wrestled alligators once or twice in their life. I never have. I just only see it on TV. But it is said that an alligator has 3,000 pounds of force when it bites. 
It is known as the strongest force in the animal kingdom. And all of their muscle is, is the downward bite. And that people catch them and you can take two strips of duct tape and they can't open their mouth. But what oftentimes people don't remember or they forget to see is that the alligator has another weapon. And it's called its tail. And the alligator's tail is as dangerous as anything because he just goes to swinging it and it destroys everything in its path. Well, I just want to tell you this morning, the enemy's mouth was subdued at the resurrection. He cannot come and just bite down with everything he has against us, but he has a tail. And he wants to destroy everything he can get in the path of that tail. So what do you do? Well, you avoid the alligator. It's kind of smart. I mean, I'm not running in after him. You avoid the enemy. Do not give him a place at the table. And so sin brings separation and it causes destruction, but it leads to captivity. After all the warnings and opportunities to repent, the day finally came that Assyria did come marching in. Assyria came in and they were destroyed. Many were killed and the ones that were not killed were taken into captivity. And Jesus even tells us in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say unto you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. So sin leads to captivity. And like I said a while ago, Satan plays for keep. He plays to keep us in bondage. Remember in Mark 5, the demon-possessed man that was over there on the island and Jesus went across to it? That man had been put over there because of all the destruction he was caused. And he was captive on a, in a cemetery all by himself. He was captive to all of the things that the demons were doing and all the things he had done to himself. Said he cut himself, all those crazy things. He was held captive. And all the enemy wants to do is sit at the table and get in your ear and hold you captive by your thoughts, right? Some of our greatest defeats is because of our own minds. And the enemy's just there enticing, just saying little things to you. Then he gets into your past, right? I'm sure everybody in here has some sort of past. And he often will remind us, you can't do anything for God. You remember what happened here? This scars in your life. This, this right here happened so you can no longer serve the Lord. Just in your ear, sitting there, just nibbling away. Your circumstances, how in the world can you serve God? Look at you now. And I'm just reminded that God is pretty amazing. And there's this thing called grace <laughs> that wipes away all of it. I mean, he pours grace on and he starts cleansing us with grace. And he himself looks at us and says, what past are you talking about? What circumstance is so big that I can't overcome it? That's the Lord that we serve. You do not have to leave here today in captivity. And then the last thing is, is the punishment of sin. Look in verse 15, it says, Though he is fruitful among his brethren, and east winds shall come, the wind of the Lord shall come up from the wilderness. Then his spring shall become dry, and his fount shall be dried up. He shall plunder the treasury of every desirable prize. I mean, it's coming. Samaria is held guilty for 
her. She has rebelled against her God. They f- shall fail by the sword. Their infants shall be dashed into pieces, and their women with child ripped open. That is brutal, but that was the Assyrians. They were brutal. And the Lord said, they're coming. The punishment of sin. Sin will lead to death. Romans 6.23 tells us that. For the wages of sin is death. And if you put a period right there in your life, you're in trouble. But boy, if you'll just put a comma there. I'm telling y'all, grammar makes a difference. I don't speak really good grammar, but man, when I'm studying that period and comma, all that makes sense. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Man, don't put a period there. Don't, don't allow yourself to, to die in, in sin. Proverbs 16, 25, there is a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof is the way to death. What some people need to do is just look up in heaven and go, God, I'm wrong. My way is wrong. My thoughts are wrong. The path I've been on is wrong. But Lord, you say that whenever I look to you from the hills where my help comes from, that that leads to life and not death. Some of us just need to look up and say, I'm wrong. And this sin will be judged. Death is one thing, people. <laughs> Judgment is a whole nother ball game, if you want to use that term. Isaiah 13, 11 says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. Psalm 37, 8, but transgressors will be altogether destroyed. The posterity of the wicked will be cut off. Sin will be judged. And here's the thing. It's either judged at the cross with Christ on your behalf or are you going to face what's called the great white throne judgment where you're going to give an account. And when you give an account for your sin, you will get the full wrath of God poured out on you. Sin will be judged. So as I thought and prayed about closing this out, this is what I offer to you today. Repent. I know you've heard it a lot over the last few weeks, but repent. The enemy is constantly trying to defeat you. And as long as the enemy, I'm going to make this very simple, as long as the enemy is sitting at your table, you will never repent. He's just going to stay there. And he's going to tell you all these things. He sits at your table this morning and tells you that you'll never be good enough. He sits at your table today and says, the struggle that you're in will overtake you. He sits at the table this morning and says that your story is a story of failure, a story of loss, a story of defeat, and your mistakes have defined you and you without hope. He sits at your table today and tells you that you are not and cannot be loved. This is my simple exchange. Evict him. Kick him out and replace the seat with the Lord. Because here is the thing. Most of the time I dialogue with the enemy. I I don't know if you do it, 
I like, I, I'm like, yeah, you know, you're wrong. And then I try to fight him and he slaps me really hard and it hurts. And I'm like, man, I'm pitiful. And I do that. And oftentimes I forget. And we shared this in our uh, small group or community group the other night. Forgive me. I said the wrong word. Uh, but and some of our younger people that were our, our group, as they're talking about taking our struggles to the Lord, they simply said, I just oftentimes forget that he's there. And I'm like, how profound is that? Sometimes in our struggles, we try to do it on our own and we listen to the enemy say, you can do it. And we oftentimes just forget that God is like, I'm right here. And so today just evict him. Repentance in a very practical way is just kicking his chair away from the table and inviting God back to the head of the table. Just saying, God, here I am. Lord, I'm through with this. I'm through with the enemy. I'm through with sin. And I want to run and I want to see you. And it's just time that we do that. Why? Because Jesus won all the victory. He has all power. He has all authority. He has all authority to tear down the strongholds in your life, the sin in your life, the issues in your life, the struggles that you're going through. God claimed victory on that when Jesus come out of the grave and he stands victorious today over all those things. So you don't have to give ear. You don't have to give place. You don't have to do all that to the enemy. You can sit there locking eyes with Jesus, knowing that he's the one that has given you victory and an abundant and an expected life. So you have to choose today. What are you going to do? Am I going to continue making graven images or am I going to lock eyes with Jesus? So how do we win this battle? It's real simple. We open up his word. We listen to his voice. And y'all have heard this before. People like, I just want to hear from God. Read loud. <laughs> All you got to do, just read loud. If you need to scream, scream. But get in the word of God. And stop listening to the lies of the enemy. And stop listening to the lies of other people. And get into the word and let the word of God define who you are. If you don't know where to start, start in Ephesians 1 and 2. You'll be blown away at what God thinks about you. Get in the word. I'm going to say it one more time. Repent. Because next week you'll see how God responds to repentance. Next week, you'll see how God, how much he loves not only Israel, but he loves us. So what do you do today? You just simply turn away from whatever it is that's holding you back. You kick the enemy's chair away from the table, and you turn to God, and you invite him back into the relationship. And you go, God, here I am. It's real simple. But the problem is, is most of the time, we sit in those chairs and exalt ourselves. Because if I go down, it's going to show weakness. If I go down, I'm going to admit that I'm wrong. But what if you come down and start praying and God begins to just move mightily on your behalf? Isn't that what we want? So today it's just repent. Real simple. Turn to the Lord. Turn to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. And God, I definitely am not one 
to stand up here. God, I am not a theologian. God, I don't know all the answers, but I know the answer. And the answer is you. The answer is simply you, Jesus. Whatever anybody's facing in this room, you're the answer. So God, today I'm just simply saying that you just speak to the hearts of everybody here. Simply, I'm the answer. And God, my prayer is that people would respond to you. If they need to come, these altars are open. And there is no judgment at the altars here. If they want to pray in their seats, Lord, you know how to speak to them right there. God, if they need to grab a friend and go to a room, you know how to speak there. God, you, that's what I love about you is you're omnipresent. Any corner of this building, you'll be there. And so, God, I'm just asking you today just to take a very <laughs> mediocre preacher with a mediocre message from a mighty word <laughs> and use it for your glory. And we love you, Jesus. Amen. If you need to come this morning, I just simply invite you to come. And the Lord, I promise you, he will never turn you away.